Welcome back to Wholehearted Teaching. It's just so good to be with you today. Now, before introducing today's guest, I wanted to explain why it's been two weeks since my last episode. Simply put, the episodes are just too rich for me to move at the pace I was moving. It wasn't the production pace, but these conversations, whether about leadership or gender inequalities or family dynamics or challenging conventions in the classroom, or most recently becoming an anti-racist, are just taking time to process. The episodes are one thing. Implementation is another. And what I'm finding and want to encourage you to do as well is that after the episode, conversations must be had. And so I'm hoping you'll reach out on Twitter or Instagram, new Instagram account, Twitter account at Podcast for Heart. Follow up this conversation with a note about something that spoke to you, something that challenged you, or something you want to talk about. I would love to engage with that. And while you're doing that, Maybe share the episode with your other teacher friends. I'd appreciate if we could continue to build this community. Today's episode is a good one. Today I'm speaking with a new friend of mine, Asante Houghton. Asante is a two-time TED Talk speaker, a gifted writer, a father, and a powerful advocate for mental health. I actually met him a few months ago when he visited my class and talked about a short essay he'd written. It was called... Dear white people, why is your mental health so white? I hope that partly explains this week's title. But today's episode is also about how hard it is to build anti-racist classrooms. On the one hand, and sadly, it's hard for our students. Asante's story will show you that at times it was hard for him to navigate the system. Because he grew up poor and black, he often experienced tokenism neglect from his teachers, and at times he had to code switch rather than being authentically who he wanted to be. But the other part of the hard work is what white teachers, like myself, have to do if we're going to interrupt unconscious biases that we hold, and often without realizing. Asante talks about how we can rewire our brains to see what our racialized and marginalized students face. And that's really hard work too. But it's possible. Asante is a believer, and he made one of me too. I hope he makes one of you. If we're willing to work at this, to fight against the system, to be brave enough to change, and change is really hard, there's a better future on the other side. Enjoy the conversation. I'm here today with uh, Asante Houghton. Asante is an activist. He's a visionary. He's a change maker, he's a writer, he's a TED Talk speaker, but today we're going to talk about a lot of that. We're also going to talk about his experiences navigating the educational system. I'm really excited for this conversation. So Asante, welcome to Wholehearted Teaching. Hey man, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So why don't we start, uh, let's do an easy question before we get to the heavy stuff. (laughs) Uh, Tell us, what's your current line of work? Uh, What got you into it? That's not an easy question. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I do so many things. Yeah. Uh, you know, my nine to five is uh, I work uh, at Stellar's Place, and um, which is a youth mental health organization in downtown Toronto. We serve age 16 to 29 in a variety of different ways. Um, we put all our services virtual. 
um, now because, you know, we're in the midst of a, a pandemic. Um, but yeah, we do a lot of different things. We do groups, we do individual counseling. We do, we have a psych- psychiatrist, um, we have a family doctor. So we're kind of like a hub. We have an employment counselor, um, a lot of different things, uh, really trying to support mental health from a holistic standpoint. And really um, what underlies all of that is our biggest value, excuse me, which is um, fostering community and connection. So we find that to be really important. So anyways, what I do, um is uh, i'm a peer support worker i don't know if i can say that anymore because that's my background uh but now i i design facilitate uh training programs for peer support workers and that's my main gig and probably the big thing i'm doing right now is called the community healing project Mm. which is a city of toronto initiative and um in that project what we're really trying to do is engage young people from marginalized communities that have a higher incidence of community violence to reach out to young people from those communities, talk about mental health and trauma, uh, help them develop skills to support themselves and support others, and also how to facilitate. And then after this 12-week training course, we support them to go out into the community to deliver 12 weeks of uh, peer-to-peer workshops to young people from their own communities. Uh, again, talking about mental health and the impacts of trauma and things like that. Now, you know, the the premise is that those who end up taking part in violence uh, almost always were around it before becoming involved. Yeah. So the idea is to try to, you know, get in the way before, you know, uh, you know, they, they kind of, the pendulum swings in the wrong direction. So... You're doing heavy work. Yeah, that's my. That's what I do every day. <laughs> <laughs> what what, what yeah. got you into it? What got you into this line of work? You, you you talked about impacts of trauma, violence, mental health, building community. These are not these are not easy tasks. What got you into this? You know, for me, uh, I think in a lot of ways, I it was never a plan for me to do this work. You know, uh, growing up, it was you know my first ambition uh, at first was uh to to be an animator this is like when i was like in grade four grade five i was like i just love drawing and like i play video games and watch cartoons and i see images come to life and i'm like i want to do that uh, then i realized i wasn't good enough at drawing to really <laughs> to pursue that like i was pretty good but you know i turned like 12 and i saw these like prodigies around me i'm like wow they're drawing like comic books like out of their head and I just wasn't that good. Anyway, so then after that, I was like, okay, um, uh, what if I was the person making the video games? Cause, so then I wanted to be a software developer. Um, but then I didn't, you know, my family was poor. Uh, so we just didn't have the resources for me to really engage in that kind of stuff. Because anyone who's like heavily into computers, um, you know, you're doing it before you ever take a university course. Mm. Right? You're doing it essentially your whole life. And um, I, I just didn't have the equipment or you know, access to internet to be able to consistently keep up with the growth of technology. Uh, so, I mean, that kind of went to the wayside. And uh, then after that, I wanted to do journalism. I wanted to do sports journalism, um, but then my mom was like, no, that don't make enough money. <laughs> <laughs> so then I went to university, had no real plan. I was just there. Uh, you know, First I was majoring in English, because I like to write and stuff like that. 
And then I was doing Caribbean studies. And then after that, I found my way to psychology and that became my main interest uh, for reasons that will become obvious as we go farther into this interview. Um, and then, yeah, I just ended up pursuing that. And, you know, I got out of school, ended up, you know, working at a community uh, service organization, uh, Pathways to Education. And, you know, what we did there was support high school students, again, from marginalized communities to um, get through high school and on to post-secondary. So that was, um, so I mean, you know, for me, it was almost like natural to end up in the place that I'm, that I ended up because I've always cared about giving back. Um, I've always wanted to do that. I've, I've never been comfortable outside of like the communities that I grew up with. Mm. Um, so for me, it was a conscious decision to like work around people I was comfortable with and not want to have to change myself too much in order to enter the workplace. Um, and the mental health aspect, of course, was the other huge connection. So um, it was almost like universal magnetism. I, did, I didn't try to do this work. I just found myself here. Mm. I, you touched on so many things I'd, I'd love to explore. I found it interesting when you said that, you know, things like computer animation and, um, you know, graphic design and those sorts of things. What was it about your, your, your what was it the poverty of your childhood that just closed those doors to you? Mainly. Yeah. I mean, like being honest, I just couldn't pay for the programs and I couldn't buy the equipment or even like the fancy art supplies, you know, yeah. like you can't really go far. I mean, maybe you can but I mean, when when all the competition around you it, are they're going to art camps and you know art programs and you know they they got all the the technology at home and you know they got the fancy pencils and you know canvas and you know all of that stuff that I just couldn't afford. Um, at a certain point, you know, regardless of talent, you know, you start to see. Uh, the gap widened between you and the other folks who have more more privilege. Um, so for me, it was like figuring out, okay, what can I do with the resources that I have? Another thing I was really interested in was film um, in high school. And I, again, I didn't pursue it because, you know, back then there were no programs that would, you know, invite a bunch of poor kids in and make a video, make a film. I mean, I know we got a bunch of that now, but when I was growing up, we didn't have that. It was, there was no program that said, hey, learn how to film and we'll give you the equipment yeah. to practice with, right? Yeah. You, you, you spoke in your first TED Talk. I'm going to link it in the show notes because it's so good. An uncommon story of hope and redemption. And, and you spoke about early in your childhood, you wanted to be Indiana Jones, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I used to walk around with my belt and like pretend it was a wick, like the whole thing. Yeah, cause you, but you said you wanted to be an explorer or an adventurer. And I found it interesting because you said you wanted to escape things. And, 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 and you talked about your childhood. What were you escaping it? Like, what was home like? like what, what was it like that you wanted to or needed to escape? You know what's interesting is, like, I, I, I cannot paint a picture of, like, a terrible home life. You know, my home life wasn't bad in the sense of, you know, living with my my mom and my two older brothers like that was good you know the aspect of my home life that was bad was the relationship i had with my father uh, which was not good uh, he was just someone who was not very reliable 
uh, at that point in his life. So it was kind of the thing where, you know, he was supposed to come by and pick me up or we're supposed to go somewhere and then he would either come like three hours late so we can't even do the plan that we planned or he just wouldn't show up at all. Um, and then, you know, I get an apology call later. You know, it's not even like, you know, uh, I'm supposed to be ready at 12 and I get a call at 11 saying, yeah, hey, I can't make it. It's like, I'm ready at 12 and no one shows up. And I'm ready. I'm still, I'm waiting one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock. I'm ready just waiting the whole time. And then I get a call at six that says, hey, sorry, I can't make it. So, I mean, that was really hard to deal with uh, emotionally. I, I didn't really have any outlet for that. Um, the other piece was just, again, just being poor. Yeah. You know, that was the other part of like, you know, uh, wanting to escape, you know, you know. So my imagination was something I cultivated as a result of not having like enough physical things around me to like really engage with. You know, I had, I had to make it up in my mind because, you know, I just didn't have the, the toys to, to play with. So you um, at home, no dad or unreliable uh, poverty. Um, was it difficult to get like you, you excelled at school, like like academically, you won senior athlete of the year. Um, you know, you won best student award voted by the faculty. Was it difficult to get to school like uh in the mornings or 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 what was it like just to get get into the building i mean depends on how you define difficult you know actually i can't really say it was hard for me because school was where all the good stuff was happening Mm. right so like that's where i was getting my validation Mm. i was getting good grades you know uh, i won't say like i was the most popular kid uh but, you know, I was, I was definitely well-known if you want to define popular, popularity that way. Like, everyone who knew who I was doesn't mean I was friends with everybody. But, um, and then, you know, I was good at sports, right? So, uh, you know, that carries a lot of weight when, when you're a guy and you're good at sports in school, you know? Like, so even the guys who, like, if I wasn't good at sports, maybe wouldn't have respected me because, you know, I was kind of like this bookworm kid who was just, like, interested in, the creative pursuits in my mind <laughs> for the most part, right? So I like these guys are like running around chasing girls and that kind of thing. And that wasn't really me. You know, I wasn't really like I was obviously interested in like girls and wanting a girlfriend and stuff like that. But I was not interested in, you know, I didn't want to go hang out at the mall all the time and try to talk to girls or that kind of that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to read and play video games and watch movies and and you know, write stories and make music. Like I was just very different in that way. So, what do you think? What do you think drove you? Um, I would I would say that you know what drove me to go to school was the knowledge that even if I was really good at any artistic endeavor, uh, being from Canada, the spotlight was harder to. It's harder to grab the spotlight to get recognized and noticed and make money doing the creative things, right? Uh, so I, I went to school because I wanted to get good grades and set myself up to go to university so I could get a job to pay the bills. Um, as far as the creativity piece, uh, it probably, again, was a result of being poor growing up. You know, I just didn't have anything, so I had to invent everything in my mind. You know, even like trading cards, right? You know, <laughs> like I, I, I was really into sports growing up, um, baseball was my favorite sport as a kid. You know, I couldn't afford to go out there and buy, you know, the 
the upper deck or the, the yeah, studio. Yeah. Joe or Carter. The... Right? Yeah, I, I couldn't go out there and buy the cards. So I literally would just like get paper and like make my own. I'd like cut it out and like write down the stats and like draw the pictures of the players on the like piece of paper and like really? name my own cards. Wow. Like this, this is what I was doing. Um, you know, so I just had to find different ways to engage in my imag- with in the, in the world with my imagination in order for me to make, you know, the world a meaningful place for me to be in because I just didn't have the resources. So, you know, I, I had to invent everything in order to have something. But that makes you rare, I think. I think, I think others may, you know, see certain barriers and, and, and give up. You, you didn't give up. You, you, kept, you kept going and you kept that you were, you know, that you were cutting out baseball cards I was like seven years old doing this. Is like, that right, eh? Writing artificial batting averages, like, you know, <laughs> Robbie Alomar's batting, you know, 302. I, I don't know if that was a real average, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I, I would have never, you know, I, I asked you when you spoke to my class um, about white privilege. We were talking about white privilege. And I said to you, when my, when my sons see a police car come down, you know, our alley, they wave and, and, you know, my sons look at a police officer and say, I want to be that for Halloween, <laughs> or I want to be that when I grow up. There's, there's, a, there's a positive association similar to baseball cards. My sons have them. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, did that ever bother you? Like, did it bother you to know? I've had many of my guests say this about, they were referring to black students. Black students have to be twice as good to get half as much. Is that something you might have experienced in your life or or was it your poverty and, and not your, your race, Asante? Both. Mm. Definitely. Uh, both had an impact. You know, and, you know, in Canada, they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, I mean, now things are a lot different. But when I was growing up, there was not like a sizable black middle class. Like most of us were poor. Uh you know, uh, so that just kind of became part of your identity. And honestly, when you're around other poor people, you don't really think about it that much. Mm. I mean, I was poor in comparison to the other poor kids. So I still, I was like really poor. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh my God. Sorry, I'm not laughing. You were right, laughing. Yeah, no, I mean, we can laugh about it. No, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm doing it. Right. But yeah, I mean, so that sucked. Uh, but yeah, you know, going to school, it, it did feel like, you know, you had to work harder to, to get the same opportunities or the same recognition. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that was true for myself. I think it was even truer for, you know, a lot of my, my classmates and the kids I grew up with because, like, not for nothing, and I don't take this for granted, probably took it for granted growing up, but I don't take it for granted now, is that, like, I was just naturally pretty damn good at school. Like, I didn't have to try hard and people typically pretty quickly recognized, you know, usually within a week or two, recognized that, hey, this kid has a lot of ability, uh, you know, rather than trying to guide him in a particular direction. It's more like we need to get out of his way. Is that right? That's how yeah. you experienced it. That they, once they, so, so can I ask about that? You know, when, when, again, when you spoke to our class and I want you to correct, it was a couple months ago. So I might, I miss me. I might be misquoting you to you. So tell me if I get this wrong here. So you said when you arrived in classes and this is the line that just has stuck with me for these last few months, you said, my teachers ignored me 
in my gifted class until they found out I was really smart. And then when they realized it, they were able to see, say to themselves, you see, this, the system works or the system isn't, there's not systemic barriers. Um, is that accurate? Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's accurate to my life experience. Uh, uh, you know, every year I would walk into new classes and then, you know, you get to high school every semester. You know, I'd, I'd walk into new classes and unless the teacher had prior knowledge of me. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I, I understand y'all talk. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand that as a kid, but, you know, I've done some work in the school system. There you go. Okay. The secret's out here. The secret's out. But as a kid, like, you know, you didn't know that, right? But, I mean, regardless, I would show up in, in, in a class and, you know, if the teacher didn't know me or know who I was, then it was kind of like I was definitely in the background. I was pretty much invisible until I did the first assignment. And I guess the teacher would read it and be like, damn, you know, this, this, this kid is pretty smart. Uh, maybe I should start, you know, calling on him when he puts his hand up in class, you know, volunteering him to lead certain parts of the discussion and things of that nature. Um, so, I mean, it was, there was never, literally in the entirety of my school career, there was never a point where in the first or second week of class, teachers were putting me, uh, you know, up front or, you know, making me a high priority in, in their classroom. So it was always something I had to prove mm. um, no matter what. So it was, oh, that. When that, I did that, prove it. Yes. But when I did prove it, then it became, you know, oh, Here's, here's this really smart black kid. Mm. Let, let's put him out on stage for everyone to see. And then, you know, I kind of become the mascot for for the school. It's like, oh, you know, here's the guy who's proof that if you work hard enough, no matter where you come from, you can succeed. Did it did it feel that mascot? Did, that feels like tokenism to me. Is that how it felt? Like it was exactly what it was. I, I you know, I, when I was a little kid, I, I I jumped right in that pool. You know, I wanted to be a part of that because it's. You know, it was validation and I didn't understand the nuances of what was motivating that, you know, that wanted to put me on the pedestal. Uh, by the time I got to high school, I hated it. Um, I, I hated it because uh, I became aware of how it impacted, one, my social standing. as like other black kids in the school because, um, you know, it, it put a target on my back in, in a lot of different ways. Um, the other piece is, you know, from a personal standpoint, I realized that if you if if the faculty had invested as much time and energy and kindness and compassion into these other young people, you know, the guys who I was chilling with at lunch and, you know, before and after school and playing basketball with and, you know, whatever, like if they had invested the same amount of time in those guys, maybe they'd be just like me, right? But, you know, not for nothing. My mom, I mean, this is, you could argue whether or, or not this was the right thing to do. Uh, it probably was the right thing to do, even if there are some problematic things behind it. But she was always trying to make sure that I did not dress or present in such a way that made me seem like, quote unquote, gangsterish. Also, like, I wasn't allowed to dress the way my friends were, were dressing. You know, I wasn't allowed to really sag my pants. I wasn't allowed to, you know, wear the bandanas and the do-rags. Yeah. You know, like, so you wouldn't allow none of that in your household, right? So 
when I went to school, I looked like this clean cut, nerdy kind of kid. So, um, I mean, again, didn't really help my social standing. <laughs> right. But what it did do is it made me more uh, palatable to the faculty. Interesting. Right? So, palatable. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I was the safe black kid. Mm. Right. And what's interesting about it is I was probably like the most rebellious mind that they had. Mm. <laughs> you know, I was just, just always like, I've always kind of been rebellious in the way I thought about the world, but I looked the part of being, you know, the, the, the Steve Urkel kind of, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. You're talking about code switching it. Um, you went through the system years ago. Do you think this still happens? Do you do some work in the education system now, this idea of, 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 of racialized students not being able to dress a certain way because of associations? Like, does that still happen today in your line of work? Oh yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent, man. I, I meet so many young people who are just like absolutely brilliant, but you know, they walk around looking like an extra from a rap video and, and, you know, which, you know, I think becomes associated with like gangsterism when actually this is just the way that, you know, people from this particular neighborhood dress, whether or not they are involved in anything street level, you know, it's, uh, yeah, so it does happen. I, I see it all the time. You know, I, when I used to work at Pathways to Education, um, the thing that I would see, because I was a, I was a caseworker. And I always carried a caseload of 50 to 60 high school students that you would get access to their OSR. Um, you would get access to, I mean, with permission, of course, <laughs> you would get access to, um, you know, IEPs, um, you know, their, their grade history, things like that. Um, and you look through the files and you start to see a pattern. And what is that pattern? Is that the black boys in particular, are by and large that the kids were being streamed into special education and then you get to high school i mean you're locally developed or you're you're in applied classes but you're not you're not in the academic or in the advanced stream you know what i mean and it was i was like it was i would estimate that with the young people i was working with upwards of 80% of the black boys where, you know, you would see it happen around grade three or four where the streaming would change. So it happens really young. It bothers me just as much this time as when you told me last time (laughs) that, that, that we miss things, um, that, that teachers miss things or we have unconscious biases or maybe not even unconscious implicit, but like, what would you, when you when you work with those young boys, do you tell them the same things your mom told you? Guys, you can't wear that. No, I don't. I don't because I don't think that's the solution. I don't think the solution is for us to conform. You know, like so when I'm wearing, you know, back then, I mean, my hip hop uniform. By the time I got to university, I was allowed to dress the way I wanted. You know, I was wearing, you know, the big jacket. I was wearing the baggy jeans. I was wearing, you know, Timberlands and all of this, right? So I was wearing the the hip hop uniform, right? And what people need to understand is that if you see someone, uh, you know, from, you know, a diff- you know, if you, if you see someone who's like a Sikh and he has a beard and a turban, you know, that's part of his culture, right? He's dressing in accordance with his cultural upbringing. I'm dressing in accordance with my cultural mm. upbringing, right? So what is being asked of me 
is to remove that part of myself in order to be seen as safe and not a threat and essentially as you know a human being and not a savage right so i i don't actually subscribe to the the line of thought where i i you know there was probably a point in time where i did say that to, to young people very early in my career um not because i didn't understand all the nuances but because i was more thinking that well the big picture is you need to get to where you need to go and however you 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 know however you do that is however you do that when you get there you know be who you want to be um but now i feel like where i'm focusing my attention is in getting people to change their perceptions about you know that young black kid who does dress in the hip-hop uniform so you know so for me one thing that i actively try to do the more and more uh you know, quote unquote famous I've gotten or whatever you want to, <laughs> yeah, however you yeah. want to call it, you know, like the more recognized I've gotten, the more, the more credibility I've earned is I'm dressing more and more hip hop, but, uh, but you know, and I'm, I'm definitely not showing up to work in, in khakis and a collared shirt, you know, I'm, I'm showing up to work in, in, in my leather jacket. It's not real leather. So I mean, so all y'all don't get on me about, uh, animal cruelty. <laughs> Uh, my, in, in my leather jacket and, and, you know, my jeans and, you know, my, my, my kicks, you know what I mean? And, and sometimes, you know, when my hair was shorter anyway, they wear the hat and twist it aside and all of that. So for me, it's, it's, it's about saying that you can be a valuable human being regardless of how you show up mm. and, and you shouldn't be judged as invaluable because you show up in such a way that is aligned with certain biases that people might have about you when you're wearing that uniform. So I want to change the perception of the uniform rather than telling the people wearing the uniform to change into something mm. different. It's, uh, yeah, it, it, this is where I get stuck. I'm not, I, no, I, I, I'm, you, you gave me some great advice. Uh, last time you spoke to my class, you said that we need to actively engage in other people's stories. Mm -hmm. When, how are you in the work you're doing now challenging, I, I would assume it's white people, to, to look beyond the uniform? What, what is it that you would say? Like it's, like why should, you're right. Why should a 13-year-old boy have to code switch to make you know, white people feel comfortable or, or safe or whatever it is? What, what, what needs to change uh, in, in, in our perception? They say don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah, it's cliche, but is that that's true? That, that's that's really what it is. I mean, but I mean, yeah, you know, I did psychology. I understand, you know, that cognitively, we we all build these, you know, heuristics uh, to essentially relieve our brain of having to do all the processing. Uh, if we processed everything individually, um, it would just actually be too overwhelming for our our brain to function. So we develop heuristics, and as part of that, you know, we we, we categorize and create these frameworks of when we see what, you know, an image of this, this is the association that we have with that image, right? So once you realize that you're making those associations and we all do it to some extent, what you have to do then is interrupt that thought process mm. every single time you have that thought and question it and then replace it with 
you know, either the, uh, an opposite thought or one that is more amenable to the person you want to be. So if I if I was someone who was, uh, you know, say we had a whole bunch of blue people running around the earth, and I was bluest, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, it's like Avatar, <laughs> right? Exactly, yeah. you know. And then I didn't want to be bluest anymore, but I realized every time I saw a blue person, I'm crossing the street. Um, and I'm crossing the street because I'm fearful, you know, and I recognize that that's what's happening with me. Um, well, if I don't want to be like that anymore, I actively decide not to cross the street. And then what do I do with my nerves or my anxiety or my fear? Well, I have to speak to myself in my head and say things like, no, this person isn't scary. They have not given me any reason to feel scared. I don't know this person. This person might be a great individual uh to their friends and family and community you know you have to say these things consciously to yourself over and over and over again and eventually you know the the old stuff will filter out and the new stuff will filter in because the way our our brains work is that our 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 neurons are constantly pruning themselves and you know the old ones die and new ones form so if you if you don't feed the old ones they don't replicate and get replaced by neurons that have the same message they just disappear and instead you're introducing new ones that create new connections in your brain you know between the synapses i'm going deep now uh, no, go 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 where, uh you know now these are the ideas that proliferate in your brain so now when you see the blue person uh the the old synaptic connection that would associate blue person with you know danger crime, crime whatever, whatever yeah, yeah. you know yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, you're in, instead you're seeing blue person and you're seeing human. Mm. You're, seeing, you're seeing father, you're seeing sister, you're seeing community member, community member. You see, you know. So, but it's active work. You have to like it's. You have to be consistent, and you have to put yourself in the like situations where you're going to, uh, you know, either engage with these people's stories. You probably want to do that before you start running to places where you know you're dealing with all these complex and complicated feelings. Um, you know, you, you want an easier way into that. You, you can't just jump right in. But yeah, I mean, there is a process and I think it's possible. It's possible. Okay. Prune the neurons. Love that. I, I love. Okay. So. They wouldn't let me into grad school, by the way. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness gracious. But I. Okay. So as you sat, this is an education podcast talking to teachers you wrote this wonderful piece. I'm going to link that in the show notes too. It's called Dear White People, Why Is Your Mental Health So White? As a high school English teacher, we studied it with my class. Wonderful piece of writing, by the way, just on a, on a literary level. But yeah, but I was wondering if you were to change the title to Dear White Teachers. Okay, so instead of Dear White... Why is your education so white, you know? Yeah, you're right. right. Why is your education so white? Talk me through that. Like, how would you, what's the self-talk I need to go through to, like, many people can relate to that example of walking down the street and feeling this impulse. I don't feel safe to walk across to the other side of the street. And you gave us some examples of how to self-talk through that. What could a teacher say when, when, when Asante arrives in his or her classroom? Well, you know, first you have to have the self-awareness to understand that you know you probably have some bias and i mean here's the thing is like we all have biases um it doesn't necessarily have to be around like racial lines you know i've been in a lot of classrooms 
And, you know, a kid will walk in with like a basketball or a football in his arm. And immediately I want to go talk to that kid because I'm like, we have something in common, you know? Yeah. So yeah. that's a bias being triggered already. You know, another kid's going to walk in with, uh, I don't know, uh, a tuba. And maybe I don't want to talk to that kid because I don't care about brass instruments, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah, I got it. <laughs> right. So, you know, it, it's about understanding the reactions you have to how other people present. Okay. Um, and then once, and we all have reactions to how other people present, you know, the work as an adult is to unlearn these unconscious reactions and, and to learn to try your best to see people as people first and to make the assumption that people are good until they show you that they're not. Mm. People right? are good until they show you that they're not. But we often assume that people are bad unless they prove that they're good. They exactly. Do it the other way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, what kind of way is that to walk through the world, man? That's pretty like, it's dark. You know what so I'm you saying? So you got to unlearn it. Yeah, you have to. How? You know, uh, the power of self-talk. I, I think self-talk is one of the most powerful forces uh, in the human experience. You know, when, uh, when you think about therapy, like, you know, they say you go to therapy, talk it out, whatever. You know, essentially what a therapist in a lot of ways is helping you learn how to do is self-talk to yourself better. Mm. Uh, they're they're helping you to discover what your own self-talk is like yes and helping you to uh, you know figure out maybe where that comes from or how you got that self-talk and then uh, again supporting you to find a new process uh to talk your way through your own inner experience and then by extension the world right so uh, i i think i think self-talk is super important in this part of the conversation and i think you know what i think we all have the power if we so choose it to self-talk ourselves into being better people mm. uh what i think is lacking for those who don't do that are you know the knowledge and the skill and the ability because no one teaches you this stuff really unless you actually like go to therapy and then also the motivation Mm. Uh, and and you know because it's it's so much work <laughs> it is it is work right I, I i started with a therapist myself and i talk about that publicly and it's so much work it's not like you go for a session and you're good <laughs> they don't fix you you no, fix they you. don't yeah you do fix you i love what you said there right therapy helps you find better self-talk um that's what would be better self-talk? Uh, I'm thinking of myself as an educator. What what are better messages I need to say to myself? Do you have any suggestions, Asante? I, I would love to do some of this work for me. You know, I mean, every, <laughs> every, every kid that walks in the classroom, you know, th this kid has the ability to be the prime minister of Canada. You know, I mean, that doesn't have to be the example, but essentially that line of thinking is like, this kid is special. There's something about this kid that is special and something that it can offer to the world. and my role as an educator is hopefully to help whatever that specialness is emerge. Regardless of where they come from, race, what they look like, class, you know, their, their ability, you know, you know, you might have a kid in your class with autism. You might have a kid in your class with down syndrome, 
you know, mm. or, right? Things that we might look at, you know, these kids and say, well, we'll do the best that we can with them, but they're probably not going that far, you know? But maybe they are, right? <laughs> you know, it's all about how we invest. In, in, in the world that I'm in, you know, people talk about things like intention setting and, you know, kind of trusting the universe and all these kind of like really abstract kind of weird things. Uh, but I really believe in them, right? Uh, I believe that we all set our own intentions um, and, you know, our upbringing certainly influences how we do that and what intentions we set. But I also think that the people around us who have power over us, which teachers do or other school faculty do uh, with respect to students, they also set intentions mm. for, uh, you know, the people that they're essentially in charge of supporting, teaching, whatever. You know, so if you're, if you're a teacher, you know, you have to set an intention for yourself to set better intentions for your students. Set better in. I got to sit down with myself to think about better ways I can talk to myself about my own. That is so rich. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, think about, we all have this person, you know, if, if we worked with young people before we, there, there are two students that we've worked with. We worked with the student that we, we just didn't like. And because we didn't like them, we didn't support them well. And then, we worked with the student who, for whatever reason, we saw potential in them and we supported that potential. And then that student, most of the time, probably flourished. Right. You know, so if you treat all of the students that you have, I mean, within reason, because I mean, we all only have one bucket of energy to work from. But if, if we do our best to treat all of our students as if they have potential then we will have far fewer students falling through the cracks. Yeah. That's my yeah. belief. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people, there's some famous line about, you know, people will become what you expect of them. hundred um, percent. Or believe in them. Or, the same is true for yourself. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, I don't know no one who's ever become like a pro athlete and they're like, oh, I just kind of fell into this. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, no, you want to practice every day for 10 yeah. years of your life, you know? Yeah, yeah you believed it. You believed right. it to fruition. That's amazing. Um, okay, last question. When you speak to students today, I, I know at Stella's Place you're working with teenagers. I know you guest speak. You talk to students today. What are the messages that you're telling them today? Um, you know, probably the biggest message that I try to get through to young people is that you are the creator of your own destiny. Mm -hmm. That nobody has the power to decide who you are except for you. Mm -hmm. There are always going to be people who misunderstand you. There are going to be people who don't believe in you. There are going to be people who throw barriers in front of you. But you decide who you are. And I mean, to some extent, other people decide who you are when you're a kid, right? But the moment that you have some level of independence over your life, you get to look in the mirror and say, hey, you know, who do I want to be? Maybe I was raised to be, you know, in, in my case, maybe I was raised to be shy and timid. But I don't need to be shy and timid. I was raised that way. It doesn't mean I got to stay that way, right? So what, what are you going to do to change it, you know? And I think we have, that there, all of us have parts of ourselves that we don't like, mm. you know? 
what are you going to do to change it? You know, yeah. a lot of people say, oh, man, I wish I could do this. I wish I was better at talking to people. Well, become better at talking to people. I'm not saying it's like a super easy process and that it's going to be comfortable. No, it's going to be hard. Um, you're going to mess up. You're going to be embarrassed. You're going to feel awkward. You're, you're going to go through growing pains. You're going to go home some days and want to cry because you feel like, you know, you just sucked at whatever you're trying to do that day. But you still got to do it if you want to, if if you want to be the person that you envision, you know. So, so you remain, you remain hopeful. Yeah, why not? It, well, there's so many reasons to say the system's the problem. The system will stop. It is a problem. The system is a problem. And and we can work against it. You know, for me, mm-hmm. probably the biggest strength that i have i don't even know if it's a strength it's it's like just irrational it's, i just I, I like i don't give up ever mm. there is like once i set my mind to do something i just keep going you know it's like a boxer who keeps getting knocked down mm. and they keep getting back in the fight it's like mm. dude you're losing like throwing the towel but I, you won't. I, I don't know how to do that mm. i like i just I don't know how to quit. I, I, I honestly, I, I, I don't know if there's, there's only one thing in my life that I could think of that I've ever quit. And I'm so ashamed that I ever did it because I did not give myself enough of a shot. And that was, you know, I was trying out for the baseball team in like grade eight or something like that. And I just had this horrible practice where, I, I mean, I was just swinging at air the whole time. And I'm like, man, I can't do this. And I just never, and there's still more tryouts left. I just never went back. Mm. And to this day, I regret it because mm. I, mean, I know I can hit a baseball. You know what I mean? I just had a bad day, right? It just happened to be the first day and my school had a lot of other kids who were really good at baseball. So I figured, man, these guys, they showed up and they did good today. I didn't, so I'm going to quit, right? Yeah. But otherwise, outside of that, I mean, you know, I I don't quit. I, I just don't. And I mean, mentally, as long as it takes, I'm going to get there. Love that. So the system has problems and you tell these young people don't ever quit. You can keep believing you can be who you want to be in this world. Is that, is that fair to say? That's absolutely fair to say, you know, where I learned that man sports, you know, if, if, if you play sports growing up, I mean, if you played soccer, there's probably a game where you're down five, nothing. And you came back to win that game, play yeah. basketball. You're down 20 points at halftime and you come back to win the game. You play baseball, you know, you're down, 9-1 in the eighth inning and you found a way to come back and win the game, right? What that teaches me is that there's always a way to win. Yeah. Powerful, Asante. Oh, I love that. No matter how far behind you are from the system, there's always a way to win. That's amazing. Um, I, I want to thank you. This has been so rich. I got to process so much of what you said. I'll, I'll play it back for myself so many times, but um, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. I know you got a ton on your plate. We'll make sure we link. Oh, how could people find you, Asante, if they want to find you and reach out? Uh, how, how could they find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at, at Asante V. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Asante Talks. Um, you can probably just Google me, to be quite yeah. honest. Yeah, you sure can. That's what I mean. <laughs> uh, you can probably just Google me. Um, but there are so many different ways to find me. I, I do encourage folks to reach out. Um, I'm always open to you know exchanging a few messages with people. I answer pretty much everything. Um, you know, I, I get on the phone, I talk to people. I mean, I like to talk to people, it's what I do. Yeah, 
Yeah, you're inspiring, Asande. Thank you so much for being here today. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Wasn't that rich? Such a brilliant man. I'm left with so many thoughts, which again is why I need two weeks to process. I'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to find me again at Podcast for Heart on Twitter or Instagram, or if you work in the TCDSB, send me an email. Hey, and don't forget to share this episode. Get the word out. I think these are messages that all teachers need to hear. And so until next time, keep bringing your whole self to the classroom, which is what wholehearted teaching is all about.